Well, this morning, as Derek mentioned, we're starting in a new series on the church, on the church. And this is really a theology of the church. And as I think about what today will be, it really is a large view of what the church is. And, and I want us to think about it in two different categories, right? There is a church, a one church, and then there are many little c churches, right? So today we're going to be looking at the church, capital C church, who it is, what it is, and what it is ordained to do. And I feel woefully equipped to be able to do that in my own strength. It's only by the Word of God and the Spirit of God taking over in this time and saying all of the things that I would hope to say about the beautiful reality of what the church is. Because what we do as a local church is an outflowing of the universal church. So even our existence as a local church flows because we're a part of the universal church. So I, I would like to think that I have an extremely high view of the church. Extremely high. Extremely high. The, the church is the vessel for the world to be changed. So, let me start by way of introduction and introduce you to a man who in the 20th century was a very prominent preacher throughout Wales and England by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones also had a very high view of the church, and when other pastors and churches around that area began to divert their attention from the gospel to other social things, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's not the way this is going to happen. That when the church loses its focus, it also loses its impact and its power. So, in light of that, we need to know what the church is and what it is supposed to do. So, in my high view of the church, I believe that it's through the church and only the church where the world will be changed. Why do I think that? Three quick reasons. Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that nothing will stand against his church. That's not a promise to individual local churches. This is a promise for his church. Churches close each and every week, but the promise is true. Jesus tells Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Secondly, I believe that it's the church and only the church that can change the world because it's been doing so since it started. Acts chapter 17. Paul and others are taking the gospel through the city and the rulers and authorities of the city bound them up and say, you are overturning our cities by making our people ascribe to things that we don't 
allow. Thirdly, it's through the church that God's wisdom is made known. Ephesians 3, verse 10. So the gates of hell won't come against the church. The church has already been turning the world upside down. And it's through the church that the wisdom of God is made known to everyone. So I have an extremely high view of the church. So with that in mind, I'm preaching this sermon to hopefully impart to you some form of extreme zeal and love, not only for our local church, but for the church. So I'm preaching that you might know fully the riches of Christ seen through the church. And that you would know that you aren't intended to walk this Christian life alone. And that in response, you would commit yourself all the more to this specific local church. So I want you to see the riches that are planned for the church. That you would realize that being a part of the church means being a part of a people. And that you would commit yourself to this specific people. So what is the church? Normally I would ask this in a rhetorical fashion, but I'd love to just get some, some youth group popcorn answers. What is the church? If you were to answer, what is the church? Well, now you're stealing my main points. It's a body of Christ. It's God's chosen people. Let me beat you to the punch. In communicating with Derek this week, I found out that there are at least 90 different images to summarize the church. So our eight-week series just went to at least 90 weeks. That's right. 82 weeks. <laughs> We're not going to look at every single image, but we see it's the body of Christ. It's the spiritual temple that's being built up. It's, it's the family of God. It's His chosen people. We're not going to be able to look at all 90 images, but you can see so many things throughout Scripture of what His church is and what it is intended to do. So a church isn't just a building and it certainly isn't a strange cult. So here's what a church is. The church is the people of God, purchased and redeemed by Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, enabled to powerfully proclaim the gospel to the world. The church is the people of God, purchased and redeemed by Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, enabled to powerfully proclaim the gospel to the world. I had intended to go slower when I repeated it the second time, but then I just got too excited, and I started to just go faster, so my apologies. If you need to see my notes after, 
I would be glad to. But so with that in mind, with that working definition in mind, let's get to the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you would, when you found it, stand with me in the honor of reading of God's word. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving the stone that the builders rejected. This one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to be completely upfront. This series is going to be extremely challenging for me. I am used to what's known as expositional preaching, where you start with the first chapter of the first, or the first verse of the first chapter of a book, and you take it bite by bite, section by section, and you work your way through, pointing our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the main point of the text. That's known as expositional or expository preaching. That's what I'm used to. That's what I'm comfortable with. This series is more of a topical or theological series where we will be in multiple pieces of text and of Scripture trying to give as full of a picture as possible. So, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, here we go. So I mentioned that there are at least 90 images in the New Testament for the church within the Bible. We see from biblical history that God's people have always been a marked out people, as Derek mentioned, being a distinct community, that from the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve to be his 
image bearers, or in one sense, to be his vice regents, to be the ones who represent him on earth. And what was their mandate? To go forth and multiply and rule and subdue everything. And we see that they didn't quite adhere to those marching orders. Very quickly, the story changes to where God's vice regents have defamed God, they have blasphemed against Him, have trusted the deceiver, and are excommunicated from God's kingdom, the garden. Then all throughout Old Testament history, we see God then continuing to choose a people marked out for His possession. He chooses the nation of Israel through Abraham. He gives them covenant stipulations, a covenant of circumcision to walk and to live like those who are different than the neighboring nations around them. That there's something unique about the God who's calling you to covenant with him. Therefore, as Leviticus states, therefore you also be holy just as the one who called you is holy. There is a representative nature in the people of God that started not with the church, but all throughout the Old Testament. But it has changed in light of the new covenant. The the church was never used as a term until Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit goes out like a rushing wind and like fire on the tongues of believers, they begin to speak in all kinds of languages that the Spirit actually enables the believers in Jesus to then proclaim the gospel faithfully. And what do we see? We see very early in the book of Acts that Peter stands up and he begins to prophesy because they're saying, these guys are drunk. These guys are speaking crazy talk. Peter begins to speak and he speaks with assurance and authority. And they're amazed and they're like, this is just a common fisherman who speaks like this, something's going on, and it ends that narrative by saying that thousands were added to their number. To what number? To the number of the church, to the number of the followers of Jesus. Then throughout the letters, you have Paul in Acts chapter 20. He goes and he is what? He's raising up pastors to serve local churches. The majority of the New Testament scripture is Paul writing to New Testament churches. You might say that 100% of the New Testament, probably not, the Gospels withstanding, is written in the context of a church. 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the church there in Corinth. Romans to the church at Rome, Ephesians, Titus, all of these books are in the, the framework of a church, a specific local church. But so what is the church? 
Well, we've just defined it. That it's the people of God, purchased and redeemed by Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, enabled to powerfully proclaim the gospel to the world. Here, Peter, writing to the church, says that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So we recognize that the church, capital C, is those only included in the redeemed. Those who have trusted in Christ and have been redeemed by his blood. So nobody not trusting in Christ can be a part of the church. Capital C. And as we get into more of the day-to-day, how we, because of what the church is, this is how we as a church will function, we want to make sure that we're doing the same thing that the church is doing. That those who are on our role, as far as we can tell, are those who have been redeemed by Christ and are walking and seeking to live like Him. So the church is the people of God. But the church is not just the people of God. The church is not just the people of God from the Old Testament. The church, again, is peculiar in that it is the people of God who have been redeemed by Christ. That something radical happened in so many different ways when Christ was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, even to the fact of changing the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, that the New Testament Christians began to worship on the Lord's Day. They're the people of God, to be sure, but they're purchased and redeemed by Christ. Just as 1 Peter 2 says, that those who do not trust the word of God and therefore do not trust Christ for their salvation, they are tripping over the stumbling block. That there is no access. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. There are many in our day who believe that they can be a part of the church and a church without any authority being over them. Namely, authority in Jesus. Their idea of Christianity and their idea of the church is not biblical. And we can slip into that as well. Well, this is, this is the way that I want to do this. Well, God's word has everything that we need. That's why over the last seven, eight months, we've thought very seriously about how we worship, how we schedule and plan our worship, that the point of God's word is the point of our scriptural call to worship, notwithstanding this morning, that our singing is pointing to the same thing that our text is pointing us to. Because God's word is clear about how he is to be worshipped. We don't come before God saying, this is how I'm going to worship you. There was a person in the Old Testament who did that by the name of Uzzah, and it didn't work out very well for him. 
If you're familiar, he thought with everything in him that if he just worshipped God in this way and got near the ark on a day that was not prescribed for worship, that it would actually please God. But it didn't. It brought judgment on him and he was killed by God himself, not by a priest, by God himself. God is clear as to how he is to be worshipped. And it is through Christ. It is through Christ. You cannot be a part of the church as our statement of faith read. Baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So churches, in one sense, mirror what the kingdom of God is like. That God sets the admission requirements. And we seek to get on board with what He says. So we are the people of God who are redeemed by Christ. And those who do not submit themselves to Christ or His Word will stumble over this cornerstone. They stumble over Jesus. But that is not our message. We ought never to stumble over Jesus. We may find his teachings to be difficult, but we always fall under authority and submission to him. Because if we have trusted in Christ as the people of God, trusting in Christ, redeemed by Christ, we are then a distinct people. Here's how Peter says, you are a chosen race. Now, again, you might go back to Old Testament ethnic Israel. Well, they've kind of got the beat on this. That if you have Gentile blood, there's no room for you in the church. Well, praise the Lord, through Christ, He atones and He unites all who will come to Him. So we are a chosen race, our, in some senses, our ethnicity, our nationality, any kind of uh, authority or submission, ultimately now is Jesus. That we are his people, but we're not only a chosen race, his church is a royal priesthood. Our statement of faith that BJ read earlier goes on to say this Baptist doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. Everybody's tracking. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. I can see it on your faces. The priesthood of the believer. Go back again to the Old Testament. In the people of God, who was it who represented the people before God? It was the priest. Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest who had the, the robe of the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, taking their sin before God, atoning for it through sacrifices. One person to mediate for a people. But in this new people, this chosen race becomes a royal priesthood. Each and every one of us has the same exact access to the God who required the sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
Why? Through Jesus. So we no longer sacrifice goats or bulls. Jesus, His blood in Hebrews chapter 9 is sufficient for all. So we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, going back to the Old Testament understanding of the nation of Israel to be God's marked out people. No longer is this nation thought of in that way. We are a people. The church for his possession with the idea that we will proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness. You see, the church, if for nothing else, is representing the kingdom of light and not darkness. And that those who make up the church would proclaim the praises. We've just gone through what seemed like four out of our five psalms were psalms of praise. For the God who has saved, for the God who's mightily done these things, so too we are to recognize that the praises of ours go to God. For His saving work of sending Christ to die on our behalf. So we are the people of God who are redeemed by Christ and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit to proclaim this good news, these praises. And so, verse 10 concludes, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're not going at this aimlessly. God has revealed himself in his word. He's shown us what the church ought to be. He's given his son to purchase the church by redeeming individuals into a collective body. So, this is the church. It's the people of God. Redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim powerfully the gospel. Now, how did this church come into being? We mentioned Acts chapter 2. Jesus bought the church. Jesus bought the church because Jesus bought us. For those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, He bought us. Not with money, riches, or gold. What did He buy us? He bought us with the precious blood. That He went to the uttermost. He didn't get into His money bag and say, okay, what's it going to cost? He knew the cost was His very life, and He did not withhold it. As Paul reminds the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 to keep watch over the flock that they have been entrusted to, the same flock that Christ has purchased by His blood. 
So as those who have been redeemed by Christ, I think we need to be reminded of the cost at which it came. The cost of the church is His own blood. The cost of our redemption is His own blood. Not only did Christ purchase the church, Christ is the head of the church, as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 states. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. See, God redeems us individually. God redeemed us, those who have cried out to Him in repentance and faith. He purchases us, purchases us with His blood and He brings us into this body, this corporate reality of the church. We could go on and on and on about the 90 different images of what the church is, how it functions. But many of those things get at our Christian responsibility and duty to work out this reality of being a redeemed member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will get into more of our practicalities in the weeks to come. What does it then look like for us at First Baptist Church Eastwood to get on board as the people of God who once weren't a people but are now His people? Because again, we've not been left up to our own devices and I think I probably should preface that there might be things in the coming weeks that I will preach from the Scripture that will be difficult. That might not be the way that we've always done things before. I'm just going to say, I think that's the reality. And let me ask you for your grace and your humility and let me give you the same in response, that if there are hard things in the text about how a church should be governed, what is the role of a pastor? What is the role of a deacon? What is the role of church membership? Should we discipline church members? Let me give you my grace and humility that rather than, as the text says, reading the words of Stephen at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 7. What do they do? They rile up against him with gnashing of teeth and they crucify him. They stone him. Let me ask you to please not do that. No <laughs> Let us look at the text for what the text says about how Christ's church 
should be governed. Let us look to church history. Let us look to Baptist history, how churches are run and governed. And let us submit ourselves to Christ, who is the head. So as we go into these weeks to come and we look at, okay, what does this specifically look like? Let's proceed with grace and humility, looking at the text, submitting ourselves to Christ, the head of the church. So what a reality that those who once were not a people, think about that. The Bible uses the metaphor of being sojourners and strangers in this world. In one sense, we're passing through that our eternal reality is not on this sphere. Our eternal reality is dependent on what we think about Christ. So as church members, as humans, we are sojourners and wanderers. So in the midst of that, let us look to Christ and not aim in wonder when God gives us clear vision and direction for what his church should be. And in our own Christian lives, let's not be sojourners and exiles apart from one another. It doesn't say once you were a person and now you're still just a person, but you're a redeemed person. It says, no, once you were not a people, now you are a people. God's chosen people. In, as one author says, there are no such things as Christians on an island. That the Christian life, as Derek mentioned earlier, is distinctly different than the watching world. The watching world says autonomy, individuality, that is our God. Don't infringe on me because I can do what I want. The Bible says you are a people responsible for one another, calling one another to love and good works and to walk in Christ's likeness and that there is no individuality within the gospel. You now are a people and not a person. So we're done wandering. We are following Christ and we're doing it together. So we speak a different message. That's why Lloyd-Jones is right on the point. That the world and its social movements and its political progressions will never do what the church can do because its message is far inferior to the message that the church preaches. So that means if the church is the people of God, redeemed by Christ, empowered to powerfully proclaim the gospel, that means we better get our gospel straight. That it's not a good news, everybody gets uh, Jordan kicks and awesome houses and great cars. 
No, the gospel is that our king suffered at the hands of the religious people. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But once we were not a people, and now we are a people, the people of God, his chosen possession, redeemed by Christ and empowered to powerfully proclaim the gospel. I'm looking forward to these next few weeks as we talk about some of these things that we've talked about briefly in business meetings. I'm looking forward to probably going over like I am today, many Sundays in this series. And I'm looking forward to not telling you when it's going to end. At least I'm honest. But I have a map charted out of where we're going to be as we talk about this cosmic reality of what the church is and then what that implies for local churches like ours. And how are we going to obey the command of being a church in our community with our people? I'm excited, and I hope you are too.